Good morning, everyone. I am so thrilled to see all of you here. Truly, it's an honor and privilege. I get to share a story today that is uh, unique to Texas Children's Hospital. My name is Barbara Jo Acuff. I'm a pediatrician by training, a cardiac critical care by training, which means I've done critical care medicine as well as cardiology in pediatrics. So I take care of probably the sickest children in the hospital with cardiac disease. So I'm going to bring you into my world for the next hour, and I'm going to hopefully tell you a story of our data journey over the, next, uh, over, over the last three years. This is probably the most or the least technical session you'll have all week. So really, one of the times to just sit back and relax and let me tell you a little bit about what's going on down in Houston. I do uh, not want to take 100% credit for what's going on down there. Amanda Welt is over here in the front uh, row from Prominence Consulting, who has really helped me, uh, especially in the last four months, push this into great fruition. Maybe six months, you think? So I, I also want to uh, give her a call out. The agenda, you know, what I, what I want to cover in the next hour, I want to, like I said, bring you into my world. Uh, down into Houston, into the medical center, into our heart center tell you where we've come and where we're going. I did speak here at Tableau Conference in 2017. Was anyone at that session? Oh my gosh, that's really amazing. Thank you for coming back. What I'm hoping to tell you today is where we've come. And it's even a bigger success than we were two years ago. Uh, we're really, really making a difference uh, at the bedside. And hopefully, I won't speak Philadelphia Velocity, where I grew up, but well, Still have time for a question and answer at the back. But I need to slow down. My husband said, don't be an aggressive Philadelphian. Just slow down. So I've been at Texas Children's for four years. Like I said, I was actually trained and uh, grew up and trained in Philadelphia and then was recruited down to Texas Children's Hospital. It is a big place. It is no lie that they, everything is big in, in Texas. So. It is the largest and most comprehensive specialty pediatric hospital in the country. I can say that with confidence. We are uh, in the middle of downtown in Texas Medical Center. It's a city within a city. And dare I say, our campus is even a city within a city within a city. And 11,000 employees, 2,000, probably an underestimate of board-certified physicians and, and subspecialists. Uh, the busiest cardiac programs in North America. Uh, this time last year, in September, we opened a state-of-the-art legacy tower. Uh, it is a tower of intensive care. There are four floors of pediatric ICU. Floors. There are three floors of cardiac intensive care. There are, our ORs are there, our cath lab is there. We have one recovery unit uh, floor. There's a helicopter pad on the roof. And that it is a, a sight to behold. I'll bring you into the lobby. Of course, bright, cheery. We are pediatricians. And um, what I want to do then is bring you upstairs into our heart center. Number one in, for pediatric cardiology and cardiac surgery in the country by US News and World Report, second year running. Uh, we have 48 cardiac beds, like I said, over three floors. The next largest cardiac unit in pediatrics is probably 28 to 30 beds. So 48 is, is, is really huge. We're doing heart surgery for babies born with birth defects and, and um, 
end-stage heart failure, those kids that are, need heart transplant. Well, why do we need a dedicated pediatric cardiac unit? Because one in 120 children are born with a heart defect. That means in a room this size, there's probably somebody sitting in here who actually was born with a, a heart defect, or at least is directly related to someone who has a heart defect, or probably a neighbor. But this is all in our circle, and still, a quarter of them need heart surgery within the first year of life. And even in 2020, we're having heart defects are the leading cause of, of death in infants who are born with birth defects. Our heart center there in Legacy Tower is full of dedicated doctors and advanced uh, nurse providers, physician's assistants, nurses, ancillary staff, respiratory therapists, all for one goal, to bring newborns and infants and children and young adults through their recovery for the repair of their heart defect or to overcome their acquired heart disease. We even have a lot of adult congenital cardiac patients, we call them, adults who were born with heart defects, who were repaired in childhood, who have grown and thrived and become active adults, the adult hospitals will not see them. So we sometimes, in fact, Monday, I had a six-week-old in one bed and a 46-year-old in the next bed. And so it, it's quite a diverse place. So I brought you to the city. I brought you to Legacy Tower. We came out to the Heart Center. And this is an example of one of our rooms. There actually is a tiny baby in there somewhere. But it can be compared to the complexity of an airplane cockpit. You know, there's a lot of different monitors and devices. There's not a lot of real estate on a tiny baby. So they would uh, monitor it out like crazy, most of the time all invasive monitoring. We have a lot of syringe pumps. So those uh, little pumps that you see hanging up like a Christmas tree are all delivering medication, usually about a cc or less an hour. So one cc an hour is our usual continuous infusion rate. For heart-supported medications, life-saving medications, also nutrition by IV. And then because we need to keep our babies comfortable and pain-free, we also have a lot of medications being delivered that way. Not only continuously, but then also by injection, kind of like a rescue dose. So if you have pain and you're on continuous infusion, you get extra doses. It's going to be important uh, later on when I, when I get to our uh, data. So like I said, Houston Medical Center, Legacy Tower, now let's go to the bedside. This is Charlie. He was diagnosed actually in, prenatally by an ultrasound. Certainly the worst news a mother wants to hear in her first ultrasound that the heart has a defect. And he was told he was going to need surgery right away. And at two weeks of life, he was flown to us. And after 12 or 13 hours of surgery, uh, we got him to recover. And he had his first day with a healthy heart on Valentine's Day. Now, now He's active, 20-month-old, running around like crazy, you know, and we call our patients heart warriors because they really do fight to recover. His dad actually said it really well. When it comes to your child, you're going to do anything and everything you can to give them the best possible chance to live and have a full life. You know, Texas Children's Hospital was not really a game changer for Charlie. It was a life changer. So now I've brought you into my world a little bit, and you say, when are we going to get to the data, lady? This is a data conference. But uh, what we're realizing is that a lot of that excellent care we're giving our patients and recovering them through infancy, childhood, and even to adulthood, like I said, 
it all comes with a price. The intensive care we're giving sometimes has some toxicity that goes with it. Actually, always has toxicity. The FDA actually put out a pretty powerful communication at the end of, uh, December, end of December 2016 that said the anesthesia, the sedation medications you're giving to these babies under age three are really affecting the development of their young brain. Terrific. I can get them through their heart defect, they can live, but then they can't pack their backpack in elementary school. That's not what we wanted, that's intolerable. The MASK study was actually another much larger study, it came out of Mayo Clinic, July of 2018, that confirmed it. Because in 2016 or early 2017, all of us said, oh, FDA, you're wrong, you're too early, the studies aren't out yet. There's a PANDA study, there's a MASK study, and then the MASK study resulted, and we found that actually it was true. We had to take this very seriously for Charlie and everybody else. The other hot topic, and if you're in medicine, you'll know that you can't pick up uh, any literature anywhere and not talk about, that doesn't talk about delirium, because a lot of the medications we use cause hallucinations and hyperactivity. They really do just take a kid out of their normal state. That's the scariest thing for a mother at the bedside, or a doctor at the bedside, or the toddler who's seeing spiders and snakes on the wall. So delirium is another very serious uh, uh, risk or complication of the medications that we had to take seriously. And in fact, the literature shows that in our cardiac ICU, even more so than the PICU, and I have it written up there, that half of the kids are gonna have delirium, and 100% of them on our most uh, supportive uh, care, or ECMO, are gonna have delirium during their care. I won't have it, I, I won't have it. So we wanted to assess the ICU sedation practice. Where, what are we gonna do about this? We have to make practice changes, we have to improve it, we have to go through PDSA cycles, but most important, we wanted to equip the providers at the bedside with the right insights to make decisions on what medications were best for the babies at the time. Knowledge is applied information, you can say data is applied information, or you can say knowledge is data. And so we were at a loss, because we had questions could we have the ability to look at every medication and, and dose and exposure? Could we look at it annually or monthly? Could we look at it hourly? Does it make a difference which provider is actually giving those medications? And how then are we gonna bring it back to the bedside for decision making? So this is a very interesting story, but all these questions and curiosities, we were lost. In EPIC, EPIC is our EMR. I'm sure if you're in medicine, most of you have EPIC. There's not too many other things. And EPIC is an abyss of data. I mean, and it is not accessible. It, it, it goes out into the EPIC, you document, you, you do your, everything that you need to do, and you make your patient's chart look terrific, and off it goes. And how to get it back was very hard. So we could get some queries, and we would get chunks of data, and we'd look at it in Excel, and I think in 2017 I showed my frustration with Excel crashing at 500,000 rows. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't useful to look at just a small chunk of, of information when it comes to all our sedation medications. I mean, the children, and if you picture in that room, hundreds of medications a day listed in the medication record. And it was just, once it goes out, you can't get it back. Or, one of my pharmacists described to me, it took her about four hours to really clearly get a profile of what a patient had seen over their hospitalization. And uh, that'll be important to know in, in the, when I show you what we did. It was over coffee, and if anyone knows me, I drink a lot of coffee. 
I'm a critical care doctor. Uh, it should just be a continuous infusion. I think that would be best, actually. The women at the coffee shop, no, I, I approach, they hand it to me, I walk away. It's very nice. But over coffee, I was describing this problem to a friend of mine. He says, you should use Tableau. Why aren't you using Tableau? I said, what's Tableau? The hospital didn't have anything. There are some people that were using some, some program called Click or something. Nobody was really using anything. So I actually went, went to town. I went crazy. I read all about it. I downloaded free trial. I went to put myself through fundamentals class with all the ExxonMobil people in Houston, as it turns out. Anybody here from ExxonMobil? They're my best friends, actually. I mean, they, they just put up with me. I was in the back asking a bazillion questions, and they're already sending off dashboards to their executives in the helicopters. It's, it's really crazy. But, and here I was, and I'm just a little doctor back here. I have data. But I didn't know. I was trying to translate, right? Profits and sales, customers, costs, into medications, doses, babies. And so in, that, in those classrooms, I would just quickly translate it back into my head, and it all really was still all in my head, but then trying to get it going. Not a lot of support. was still alone in my office doing a lot, but we got it going. We got it going good. And we started seeing things like this. This is looking at all the data. This is looking over a couple of years, counting every dose of the most popular medications we use, which would be the top blue is opioids, pain medications, very powerful pain medications, making the newspaper every day. The bottom is our benzodiazepines. Those are the drugs particularly pointed out in the MAX trial and in the FDA communication to be poisoning babies' brains. Okay, if this was your financial advisor giving you this report, you'd be pleased and happy, but if this was your doctor giving you the report on your own baby's exposure to medications, it would be unacceptable. And that's where I stood. This is unacceptable, and we need to make a change. This is a money shot. I'm going to explain this a second, because this was really what got everybody's attention when I started putting all the data together. These are all the medications given over a couple of years, put on a, a report by hour of the day they're delivered. So across the bottom is midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., all the way across to 11 p.m. And then what this graphic is showing is the number of doses given by that hour of the day. This is... This is what we always thought was happening, but no one actually could show it. 4 a.m., 7 a.m., 7 p.m. If you're in medicine, if you're in an ICU, if you're in a hospital, you know that there is a rhythm to the unit. At 4 a.m., all our chest x-rays are done. At 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., our nurses do handoff. Our babies and our patients and our children and our adults, we're getting a lot of medications at those specific times during the day, probably more nurse-driven than patient-driven. We needed to make that change. And so what we did was we went crazy, again, massive education uh, strategies. We put out a lot of mandatory learning modules. We introduced an objective, validated objective score for sedation. And Texas Children's Hospital had not had one of them before. That's why it was like free, you know, Free, free goings on, and we just had more and more and more doses being given because there wasn't an objective score. Sometimes they're looking at monitors or they're looking at their watch dosing babies rather than looking at the baby and what they need or the child and what they need. So now introducing this objective score was how we intervened. So we inter intervened with implementation, went crazy with it. We changed the way they were documenting in EPIC so that we could capture the data a little bit better. 
and we developed sedation protocols, more of, I don't want to say a recipe, that's a strong word, but more of a pathway to follow. If you have an objective score that's above what the doctors want, then you dose medication. If, you're, if your objective score is where you want or lower, maybe you have to think about decreasing medication, which was a whole new uh, opportunity for our patients to actually decrease the medication. These are the sedation protocols, not meant for you to see, except that they're very colorful. Again, we're pediatrics. Um, but uh, they address the, the medications for pain and sedation, and the purple is actually how do we get them off it. Because like I said, in all the papers everywhere, the opioid crisis is hot and heavy, and I'm causing a crisis in my cardiac ICU. Giving children a lot of opioid medicines for pain, maybe a little bit more than they need, a long exposure, a long dose, causes addiction. And then it causes withdrawal. And if you have a delicate heart condition, withdrawal can be deadly. And I can definitely point to periods in time where I have patients withdrawing from opioids and arresting. So we have to be very careful about it. So we have a pathway that addresses how then, if we're on the medicines, how do we come off them? And the teal pathway at the very end is our delirium pathway and how we can address delirium. Um, most of the time, it's just by controlling the environment. So that's all our education. So has all this profound education and communication done anything? So there I say yes. So this ticked down for the first time over many years. The number of doses the babies got, especially the bottom one, which is the benzodiazepines, we really made a difference. So it was January 2017 that we introduced that uh, validated score, all the education, and we started to see a tick down, which is very exciting. When you show people data, probably all of you know this, first you show them the data that things aren't looking so great. Then you show them the data that things are improving, and it causes a little wildfire. People get excited, and they want that to continue. This is actually showing the daily average dose. This is kind of by hour of the day. But this is average number of doses per day over the quarter. We're getting extracts here from Epic, so I'm using them in Tableau. But I'm getting quarterly extracts. And you can see, though, over the quarters in 2017, a significant drop, in fact, 12% for opioids, a decreased exposure in our patients, 26% drop in benzodiazepine exposure. And also, it was important to know, we didn't have an increase in safety events. So these kids weren't wiggling out of their, their, their invasive monitoring. They're not levitating off the bed in pain or screaming, discomforted. They're actually awake, tolerating things, able to interact with their parents. You know, to see a child who's on a lot of different ventilators and monitors open their eyes, suck on a pacifier. Truly, this was a big win. This is 2017 again, too, and I'm showing this because the line graph is showing the number of doses, and like I showed you a couple of times already, we had some excess in 2017, and the bar graph here is showing the total average dose, like the number, actually the dose, milligram equivalents that the patients are getting. And that was also falling, except there's a really high spiking bar there. The week, this is by week. The week there is August 25th, 2017. Anyone know what happened in Houston? Hurricane Harvey. And this is just very interesting to point that this showed up on our data because we had nurses stuck at the hospital for five or six days. And the patients 
got sedated. <laughs> so, you know, when your, nurse and your nurses and your staff are going, undergoing their own psychological stress, they're worried and anxious about their own families at home, they're worried and anxious about what's going on in the city, our patients felt it. This has never really been shown before. <laughs> like another one of those, hey, we think that's probably going to happen, or we think that probably did happen, actually, the data shows it. And uh, this was actually presented at a national conference to, be, to our nursing staff. We need to support them because the next Harvey will happen. The next natural disaster will happen. How do we support our staff better? This is not pointing to the patients. They, they did fine. I'm more worried about our nurses. So did this sustain? You know, Barbara Joe, you're telling us all this great thing, but like, how do you sustain this? And actually, that's the biggest problem written about sedation practice in, in any ICU is the sustainability of a protocol. Their problem, in, in, if you read the articles, is they didn't have any way to follow it. So by having all of our data in Tableau, we were able to follow it. And you'll say, well, Barbara Jo, this looks exactly the same as 2017 did. You know, okay, great, it's falling. The problem is that the quarter one of 2018 was actually higher than the previous quarter one of 2017. And all of us started freaking out. Oh, no, all that effort. We realized that the legacy tower was coming. Remember, that was the, uh, September of 2018. They had hired a huge number of new nurses. And we had to redo all the education. And unfortunately, or fortunately, a new nurse who doesn't have the experience, who has a child who has half a heart, is going to probably dose a little bit more than an experienced nurse who's been there two or three or four or five years. So we saw an increased tick up, and so we just pushed out the education again. We put a lot of effort into it again, and again, it started to fall. So by having the data, you show the data on a regular basis, you can have control over it and sustainability that no one in the country has been able to do. I, I know, bragging, but 2018, 2019, we don't, we're not really quite finished quarter four yet, but this is uh, our 2019, so you can see, and I, I have a feeling our opioids are gonna plateau at some point because we are a surgical unit and the pain, pain medications are still going to be used. So at some point, we're gonna plateau out. And uh, again, I can show you other, other graphics, but we are not having the increase in safety events. So this is tolerable, and I think we can say that the kids are being dosed more appropriately. So this is that uh, daily dose again, that, that graphic I told you was the money shot. You're still seeing the rhythm of the unit, okay? X-rays are difficult to do on a kid who's tied up with everything monitoring and on a ventilator with a tube in their throat. So I, I get it, and sign out has to be quiet and, and important because if you miss a detail to the nurse taking over, that could actually be just as dangerous. So I get it, but you can see that the day and night variation has squished, the number of doses has squished, and the benzodiazepines have separated from the opioids, which was where we're really targeting. And again, in the 20, 2019, uh, like I said, we're not quite done, but we're, we're following it actually on a weekly basis and it remains to be here. So we looked at all the historical data the number of bolus doses I was telling you about, so those rescue doses, the extra doses, the total dose exposures, also following how many milligrams the kids are seeing total. Have we affected anything else? ICU length of stay? That would be important. ICU length of stay has been linked with higher mortality and morbidity, which means the longer you stay in my ICU, the more risk you're going to kill you. I mean, basically, 
because we have a lot of complications that come with our excellent care. Um, we have affected uh, length of stay. So this is both medical, this is over a couple of years all uh, aggregated, but our medical patients who haven't had surgery and our surgical patients who have had surgery are not staying in the ICU as long because they're more awake, because they're not withdrawing off their opioids for days on end. So we're able to get them out. Forward progression of care. I like to call this slide forward progression of care. And for all the people, I'm sure that there's some business people in here because this means money. If I can get the children out of the ICU sooner, then Dr. Calderon, our chief of cardiothoracic surgery, can do more surgeries, which brings all the bucks. So decrease ICU length of stay, not only for excellent for the patients, but excellent for our heart center because bring in the bucks. Uh, when now we've talked about uh, aggregate data and population kind of data in our ICU, and when we talk about can we look at the provider, can we get any kind of, can we glean any information from the data about the actual provider who's giving these medications? So we created this dashboard, and it's still a little bit beta, and then one of my variables was dropped out of our data set, which I can't talk about my relationship with IS. I'll get upset. Anyway, um, the top of this is showing a week's worth of, of um, doses given. Each dot is a different nurse. So each colored dot is a different nurse. The top one is actually just a week. I don't remember which week I picked. Um, and then the bottom is actually the entire year. So what you want to do is maybe pick this guy. These are 14 doses in one shift. Our average is five or to seven. So what we did then was, at the bottom, put a line where you can see there's seven doses. That's what we're hoping is acceptable. That's the average. So why the heck did this guy or girl give 14 doses in one shift? That's quite an experience for your patient. That up and down kind of dose and asleep, dose and asleep, scream and sleep, scream and sleep, the worst kind um, of risk for delirium and a terrible patient experience. So 14 doses, why? Can we keep monitoring that? You can see that this is probably just a really bad day because the nurse in red dot nurse, red dot nurse, the annual practice is actually not to be above five most of the time. So this is a bad day. But if we can look at the end of the week, you know, look at review this on a Friday, then you can go back and say, it's just a bad day. Well, what about this one? So this one, you know, has kind of a habit of giving more doses than seven. I mean, what does that one say there, 20-something? Whoa, in 12 hours. I don't even know how you give that many doses in 12 hours. But this gives the nursing leadership kind of a little spotlight, maybe a targeted education, so that we don't have to rerun the mandatory education modules for 200 nurses, but maybe just a few, just as a reminder. We're trying to create a cue card. Not a Q-U-E like a theater, but a Q like quality. <laughs> so that they can get a report, and nurses can get a report. And then this one I showed you because it's a lot of doses in one shift, but maybe getting better over the year, maybe with more and more experience, you can see that. And so this was actually, we can do some research on this to find out what's the threshold. How many months do you have to be in the ICU before you start giving fewer doses? Um, this is to remind me now, okay, one of these is my patient. <laughs> The other one is a visitor. <laughs> so this Bailey, actually, she does come through our ICU very regularly and uh, brings us a lot of happiness. Um, but 
okay, I told you the population stuff, I told you even our provider stuff, but can we really bring it down to each individual patient? Can we drill down into the individual patient? So I told you the old way, and those of you that were here in 17, I was still working with big extracted data sets, like every now and then when my pharmacist got a chance, we'd get a SQL query and I'd throw it together and I'd blend and join it, which you know has all kinds of difficulties, and then I would report it. Okay, well that's first of all three months old. How am I gonna act on that? And then, of course, then there was a lot of difficulty. It was data wrangling, and uh, you know, I didn't, it was not a very pleasant experience. Screamed, threw a couple tantrums, and got myself a uh, critical care department, a little four-core server. And we got a Tableau server. I had a bake sale to do it because my IS wouldn't buy it. But anyway, we did it. And uh, now we're actually getting flat files from Epic Clarity Tables on a 24-hour basis. So midnight happens, everyone's Clarity Tables are updated. And then I, I um, beg, borrowed, and steal to, to get the right connection in order to get data sets now um, around 9, 15. Then they go through a processing, a Python script that does some processing calculations. And then we publish and share these. And so now we have medication dashboards. Instead of quarterly, even weekly reports that I can give to the heart center, now we've brought it to the bedside. So I'm excited, and I'm really hoping this works. This is our unit. This is the 17th floor of Legacy Tower. Should I say this is only one of our units? The 17th floor, so this is um, not gonna quite move yet, but I'm, the cursor's gonna move. I hope it doesn't make you seasick. But I kind of took a movie of when I was doing the dashboard, so I wouldn't have to try to figure this out. But you can see that from 1701 all the way to 1724, this is a geographic map of our unit. And the colors are a heat map of our vasoactive inotrope score. That is actually a measure of the heart support medications that are running in. So the sickest of the sick are going to be darker, and the kids that have a less or a lower VIS score are lighter. Oh, yes, yes. No, I have it. If I run the video, I actually put it on there that there's all the, thank you, Amanda, completely de-identified. And if any name is actually matching, it's completely coincidental. Okay? Completely. So, yes, it's all, this is just demo data. And that nothing is true. It's all made up. But uh, thank you, Amanda. So the light colors are, are less sick. Dark, dark colors are more sick. So this is really important for us to see, right? You can see it. Now it's only as updated as midnight last night. So as this runs, I think it's just showing you, I'm just pointing out that the light color and the dark color, see, you see my cursor there at the light color, and then at the dark color. And then all the patients are listed. We have a couple large monitors uh, that we're trying to have adoption into having these dashboards up on those monitors. You can walk by and know immediately what the acuity was at midnight last night. We're trying to get that up you know, closer to real time. Um, that's even a bigger problem. but. Um, you, this is giving us a, a, a kind of a cheat view of the acuity. And nursing hasn't quite used it yet for nursing staffing, but you could see that it could be used for nursing staffing. You're gonna put your experienced ones in the dark rooms, and uh, that doesn't sound so good, but, uh, and you're maybe least, least, least newer people or orientees in the lighter rooms. So that's just pointing out that all the patients are listed. I think um, in, this is gonna take us to the 18th floor. So the 18th floor there is 12 beds. The other side is actually our cardiac operating room and we're very close to them. Sometimes we need them immediately so we don't let them get too far. Our 18th floor are, are newborns. They're usually born into this unit. I go get them from the delivery room in the building next door. 
And we're going to look at this patient. So we're drilling down into that room. You can see the little plus sign brings us to a profile. This is that actual individual patient's exposure to medications. So if I take you on a clockwise tour, you can see that these are the drug families that the patient is on. There's a list of the medications that the patient has seen. This little girl is actually now, it's going to show you that the, the blue dot is what she's currently getting. This is made up patient, remember, made up. And then the calendar icon next to that is going to inform to the duration. Right now it turns red if they've been on more than five days because that's the risk of, of addiction. And then the next little syringe is the exposure, so a threshold of exposure, which is actually not determined yet. Then you have uh, a profile over time. And right now it's going to, I think it's going to change it to three weeks. I had it at a two-week uh, default. And then now it's going to change on the filter to three weeks. So this is every dose of medication given continuously or by bolus or injection or as needed for that patient has seen in three weeks. So you can see how it goes up and down. You can see where the requirements are. This one is not as dramatic because I'm using it as an example. Most importantly is this block. These are the number of extra doses the patient's getting. Yellow is daytime shift. Blue is nighttime shift. And you can see here, because it's three weeks if you, in your head, if you cut it into thirds, the first th week was not so bad. That middle week was horrible, getting you know, nine, seven, eight, nine doses during a shift. And then the third day, not so bad. What that third, that week there that I circle, I'm catching up well to my video, um, shows that this is lack of capture. The patient's really still in pain, not comfortable. So the, the, the team increased the infusion, captured the patient, less doses required. So this is you know, really bringing insight out of Epic uh, in a graphic form you can know in minutes. And then there's a little recommendation here, recommend turning the infusion down because we're not getting as many rescue doses. So it'll, it'll tell you based on how many they've gotten in each shift to either recommend turning it up or turning it down. And like I said, once you turn on medication, sometimes they just don't get turned down. So this is informing the team on this dashboard, turn it down, you're okay. You're not getting a lot of rescues. It's very wonderful, and it has not been previously done, as far as I know, anywhere, is we can click on a drug family, opioids, for instance, and see actually the exposure. So this is the cumulative dose. Now, I have it set at three weeks. Remember in the filter, we put at three weeks. So this is the cumulative dose over those three weeks. 100, almost 110 morphine equivalents, which is 110 doses of morphine, milligrams of morphine. There's a running sum. And that's going to go over those three weeks. And then the bottom line is actually the daily dose. Um, I can't see it's too far, but just to know that the, what the daily dose of morphine equivalents are. So the patient's on different opioids, but our calculations will convert it all into morphine equivalents so that we can uh, interpret that. So benzodiazepines also can be converted into what we call diazepam equivalents. So just something that we can interpret. You can see that this is a very low dose. This is excellent care, trying to avoid benzo, uh, uh, like the FDA has recommended we do. We actually can say we have a benzodiazepine sparing practice, which is excellent news in the last three years. This is now going to take us back to the 17th floor. From the 18th floor now, we're going down the stairs to the 17th floor. I think I just have another example or two um, that we have some time. So um, just another example or two. I think we picked there, um, Mr. Underhill, fake name. I'm sorry if anyone here is named Underhill. 
Um, and you can see that this patient is on fewer medications currently, but had had a history of a lot of medicine. But now those blue dots are what he's on currently. And you can see if we drill down, let's, I think it's going to change it to a couple more weeks, um, just so we can have a bigger, bigger picture. This is a terrible patient experience. If you look at that, that is just 8, 9, 7, 8, 9, 10. We're not quite into that 14, 20 range that we were on before, but this is still very a lot of drugs but given by uh, rescue. Informed the team then to make a class change to phenobarbital, and everything got better. We have some children genetically that are non-responders. Can we identify them? We never have been able to before. Now we can. So whether this was a non-responder or not, I don't know. We actually have a partner of mine that's looking at epigenetics, uh, pharmaco, uh, pharmacogenetics. And this is telling us here again, let's turn it down because we captured him. And I think actually by the time at the, all the, the other end, we're off opioid. That's excellent news. Um, but his history showed us that he had a very high dose of opioid. Um, Dexmedetomidine is a drug we're getting to know. It, it puts kids to sleep beautifully but now we're realizing that it also has its own toxicities and its own problems, and we're going to have to deal with dexmedetomidine as well, Presidex. Um, now we've come down to the 16th floor, where all of our heart transplant patients and device implantations, so these kids are sometimes running around with metal hearts in them, with little plugs coming out their chest. They ride little bikes around sometimes, but uh, or they're very sick. Their hearts don't work a lot. This particular little girl, made-up girl, is on a lot of drug. A lot of drugs. Polypharmacy uh, is, really does cause a lot of its own problems. So not only cumulative dose, but actually polypharmacy, a lot of drugs. So this right here in front of the team is all the drugs she's on, what the, the history of those drugs she's seen. They actually haven't made any changes over think, three weeks or four weeks, whatever. I'm changing it to up there on the filter. Um, but she also hasn't gotten a lot of rescues, if you see in this box. This is a very tenuous heart. It doesn't like a lot of change. Sometimes these little babies and children, they don't like the wind to change in their room. So we have to maintain them on a lot of medications. But is there a better experience they can have? Um, I think we're going to go into her opioid exposure is bonkers, <laughs> just bonkers. But sometimes we have to adopt that. We have to come up with a plan. Having this profile, having this dashboard, having this individualized plan is much easier than to, to figure out what we're going to do. If she gets a new heart, we'll come up with a different plan. Um, and that's that little girl. I'm seeing what else we have on that. Um, the difficult to sedate. All the way on the far left, you can see that she's recognized as a difficult to sedate because of this polypharmacy. Six agents or more. It's actually four or more was the threshold to be called difficult to sedate. And we use this dashboard as part of the complex sedation team, a new team that rounds with each uh, service and follows the patient specifically on what floor they are on and if they're hitting the threshold of being on more than four agents. What I'm finding is my colleagues, they don't like their patients on this dashboard. <laughs> they want to have a plan before they hit the dashboard. And the, the red ones are getting, it's heat mapped, so none of my colleagues want their patients to be the red ones. <laughs> so it, it's bringing us right insight directly down to the patient, their individual profile, making a plan for them. And if you can imagine that bottom um, graph is showing the number of patients on the difficult to sedate dashboard over time, and that's a whole year. 
But as we've made these implementations, as we're rounding, as we're knowing the individual profiles from the data, that line is going down. I don't have a trend line on it today, but um, we can see that the number of patients exposed to polypharmacy is, is getting so much better. And I think that ends our tour of the units, and I'm reminding you again, it's completely fictional. I think that's our, our plan. So what do we expect then from dashboarding? I'm very excited to tell you that obviously we've had a lot of success. And I, to know and to have the insight about my particular patients, those that are responders, forward progression of care, and those that are non-responders or those that are just so fragile, at least I know what's going on. So improved consistency and assessment, identification of those sedated patients, obviously trying to get on top of delirium, avoiding withdrawal, improved communication around these dashboards. Like I said, sedation rounds, the formulation of a complex sedation team, unheard of. And then obviously interventions and prevention being number one. So we have now a sedation stewardship committee that also looks at these dashboards, really trying to come up with even more insightful dashboards, quality measures, research projects. Like I said, some of these thresholds have never been found before, and now we have the data in front of us. So we are really excited to be publishing off this data as well. And uh, like I said, the chronic patients and complex sedation, and, and I have to say, go Astros. We still love them. But I'm a Phillies fan through and through. It's trying. Um, so far, we've been able to describe, and like I said, the insight, the unavailable epic abyss of data. And now we've been able to reduce our total dose exposures, less patients experiencing addiction. We've been able to reduce our ICU length of stay. Um, we've been able to follow that on a more close basis since we've been getting our data dumps. And then also reduce frequency and we're not having uh, more unplanned events. So these metrics have obviously made a difference for our patients at the bedside and will continue to. Um, truly, the analytics that we're doing, the insights we're making are gonna make the difference for Charlie when he's trying to do math in elementary school or Adelaide just to pack her backpack, right? And little Jonathan, you know, gonna be just running around like a crazy person making his parents nuts. But um, this is the time I think we have a few minutes left for any questions. Uh, I will try my best to answer. And um, I'm really grateful, like I said, for the opportunity to share this story and the success that we found at Texas Children's. Um, and I will continue to do so. A question? Question? Go ahead. Yeah, so his question is whether we have this at bedside. Is it integrated in, in hyperspace? It is not. It's a web-based application. So the providers, the fellows, my trainees, uh, the APPs actually open a, a separate web browser um, to get right onto the server. So I, I actually have to tell you that I'm a bit of shadow IT in my world. Uh, so Tableau is not enterprise-wide. And so we use it in the critical care department. We're using it for our uses. And so they've kept it as a, as a web-based application. But it hasn't caused trouble. You have your Epic up, and you have your dashboards up behind it. So I'm, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm smiling because this is my big dream, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't know I was shadow IT until I was. So OK, go ahead.
it, this has been my, you've just spoken to my whole three years of life. So um, the question is, and I'll repeat it, is that you know, to have a doctor be the champion of the data is something novel, and you know, how do you have people embrace it? So it's, it's true, you'd think that IT or information services would bring it to us and say, we have this great tool you can use. And what I've been doing is saying, look at this really great tool I have and bringing it to IS, and really, been just, aren't you adorable? So it's, it's discouraging, but it hasn't stopped me because I know what the difference it's making for my patients. And so my colleagues are seeing it. So there's return on investment, right? So I'm just keep working and keep working, putting dashboards in front of people and bringing it to my leadership. And so our Heart Center, our Heart Center Executive Committee has a little willpower behind it. Um, I haven't gotten the enterprise to even accept Tableau. And like I said, they're, I won't say anything more than that, because I'll probably get myself in big trouble. But I do continually work, and so I, because it's so much, it's so much an, an exciting tool and what it's been doing for us, and I haven't been able to duplicate it with any other tool, and that's all I'll say with that. But um, truly, it's, we're just continually working. I have okay. two questions. I hope that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> They're free today. So um, the one outcome that you've been looking at is ICU, uh, reduction in ICU, uh, which is fantastic. And I applaud all the things that you're doing. Um, what other outcomes are you looking at over time? Are you looking at um, clinical outcomes where you're trying to link what's happening to uh, cognitive uh, function in these children? That's question number one. And question number two is, what are you doing or is uh, the um, hospital doing to uh, show other hospitals, other children's hospitals, or really even just within the hospital, uh, that this can uh, really make a difference and uh, get the word out? Yeah, excellent. So th to address your first question, so all of our children who are born with birth defects and go through our heart center have surgery or undergo heart, acquired heart disease treatment are seen in our neurodevelopmental clinic. So they're seen at six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, and then onward. And so we have developmental tests for all of them. What we didn't have before to match with that data was their cumulative dose exposure, and now we do. So we have another colleague who's very interested in the neurodevelopmental outcomes. I'm um, just like you're saying, we're using some retrospective data, but actually now even we can use more prospective kind of uh, following to find out if these kids are, you know, are we affecting that? And even at the six and 12 months, but even if you think about it, a, a mother who can look at her baby, like I said, with her eyes open and can interact with them versus that heavily, deeply sedated baby who you know, the experience has been even that much more dramatic. And so we've brought neurodevelopmental teams to the bedsides so that they can work with the babies and reading stories and moving them around, some massage, where that wasn't available if the kid is completely out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in the works. It's in the works, yeah. We have a lot of critical care consortiums that share data, and so they're... I've already been pulled into some of them because I have the data and they want to see this like this too. And so um, the research studies that we're doing is we have this big quality project and then this, the research stuff is just falling out of it. So it, it's been very exciting. The other hospitals, like I have, I was trained in Philadelphia, excellent friends there and so, and, and everywhere, big heart centers doing excellent work. 
And I've been able to talk at some national conferences um, and to, to share with this. And so like I said, through our consortiums, we're trying to, um, people don't, aren't, aren't doing this yet. But I'm hoping that they can see it's, it's very easy to do. And these are reproducible dashboards. It's not something that is proprietary to, to me or Tableau, right? Sorry, there's one in the back. <clears throat> Hi. Um, question about your users, um, what types of users you have. You mentioned nurse manager, probably some doctors. I, you know, how many users you have, um, how'd you get them to kind of adopt it, get used to it, uh, training, that kind of thing? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's also talking to my last three years' experience. So my, my ten core or four core server has ten users. And then we've tried and, and like I said, through bake sales and beg, borrow, and steal to get a couple more users on there. So now we're actually at 100 users. Um, and most of the time, they're the frontline, we call them frontline providers. They're the ones in the battlefield. Our, our attendings, my colleagues, they don't have access because I don't have room for them to have access. I need the, the fellows who are writing the orders into Epic, who are documenting into Epic, I need them to see those dashboards and use them to make their decision-making too and to have those insights. And so when you have your documenters, also your users, your documentation gets better, by the way. Um, but the adoption of this has been slow. I would, not, I would be lying to tell you that, uh, you know, you walk into my cardiac ICU and these dashboards are up on, on the wall, the heat maps are running and using. Not yet. We're still, we're still slow, especially because we're not enterprise-wide. Uh, so all of the education has been, you know, really one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but it's a fantastic communication tool with my fellows. I would, dare I say, my fellows are probably the most trained in sedation and pain practices, you know, because we, we talk about this all the time. So it, it's, it's a struggle. I, I would not lie right now because I don't have enterprise. Here. Yeah, are you tracking um, which patients had um, episodes of delirium um, at all? I mean, is it based on cumulative doses or doses per day or any of that kind of data? Yeah, that's another research project. Actually, one of my fellows, he's, he's a fourth-year fellow now um, and will soon graduate to become his, uh, an attending. Or, uh, and um, he is looking at that very thing. Is it the polypharmacy? Is it the cumulative dose that causes this delirium? And we have measures now, uh, also an objective score for delirium that we're capturing and we're following. So, yeah, that's, that's in the works, too, to try to identify what thresholds they are. Is it how many drugs or how many, what cumulative dose pushes you into that? So, mm -hmm. and we have all the data. Okay. All right, so I wanted to like uh, congratulate you because you've done an amazing amount of work, right? Um, and especially when you're not an enterprise level. Uh, to kind of give you like my little bit of a story as well. So I work for one of a very big uh, health system as well in South Florida. And um, for us, Tableau is as well very uh, fragmented. Like uh, it's not enterprise wise. Um, I got exposed to it a couple of years ago. I'm an administrator by myself, uh, overseeing uh, finances for neuroscience and the health system. And when I was exposed to this, and I was like, wait a minute, I could do so much better with this. And in the, over the last three years, uh, when I've um, you know, used all of my data analytics using Tableau, um, very recently, um, I was asked to do what is what we're uh, cur currently doing is an efficiency dashboard for our hospital from the time the order gets placed to the time the patient uh -huh. leaves the room and the room is available for the next patient. And once the dashboard was developed on Tableau, I have thousands and thousands of users that are actually using it mm -hmm. and making decisions out of it. Uh, has gotten to that 
um, enterprise level uh, notification that, wait a minute, there's something out there that we can use. And I'm so happy that in this conference, I was able to get in all of my IT people as well to kind of take a look at it and see, you know, what we can do with right. Tableau. Yeah, um, that's that return on investment. Right. And so, I, and that's something that, you know, I think uh, we, we will probably, you know, go in that direction. What I want to kind of echo with you is, you know, we use Cerner as our EMR, and, and again, there's massive amount of data that resides in Cerner, but it's so hard to kind of get that, extract that yeah. data, and so that is where my, one of my challenges yeah. is, and that is in collaboration with IT, just like you guys said, probably, you know, is where I have to rely on them to get what I need, yeah. and then be able to dump it into Accessibility, yeah. yeah. So that's that's my biggest challenge. It's true, so, the bottleneck, yeah. we're mm -hmm. living there. Everyone has the same problem. It'll yeah. break through sometime. Okay, one more, yeah. So when did you find time to fit all of this research and building the dashboards into your day? Was it mostly in your free time, or did you somehow get support from your supervisors to do it during the day and to attend these national conventions to share your mm. finding? I have to answer that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm 98%, 99% clinical. So we do have, because I'm a physician in the ICU, I'm also an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. That's our academic you know, support sponsor, our academic. And we have um, an obligation to publish. So, you know, and we have obligation to be in part of quality pro projects. I just took on a big one. I just took on a big one. So, you know, but it's fun, like, right? When, when you like what you're doing, it doesn't become work. And so my husband actually works for Dell Services, Global Services, and, you know, he says, you suddenly turned into a big data geek. 28 years of marriage, I've been waiting for it to happen. So, yeah, so it, it's kind of fun. And to see, you know, but like to play in it and have success and to see things kind of pop up is it, it, so much easier than, you know, pivot tables and things like that that I see my colleagues struggling with. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, it's exciting, it's creative. I have really, like I said, I introduced you to Amanda Welt. I really have gotten incredible help from Prominence Consulting these last few months. And Amanda's um, really a miracle because a lot of what I had in my head got made in real time. And reality became reality. So, and that's just been like the last couple of months. But sadly, that was, I'll have to have another bake sale, I think. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Dr. Chaikin. Um, Dr. Barry Chaikin from Tableau. I have um, two questions for you. The first one is you talked about the polypharmacy and non-responders. And what I thought was really unbelievably interesting is you said um, you couldn't identify those patients before and that the only way you can identify them was with the data. Can you expand on that? So the difficult to sedate kind of threshold there that catches those kids that are on four or more drugs and then when you watch and look at their, their rescue doses are not capturing them anymore. And that goes on a couple of days. You need to change, you need to change class of drugs. Those then can be identified. Those are our truly difficult to sedate patients that require multiple drugs, different types of drugs, class changes. And so those are, you know, we can try to put them in a, in a, in a pot and say, why are they different? And honestly, we're finding that there's, there's probably four or more sites that are opioid receptor sites that are different for those patients. And so the pharmacogenetics of that is, is, is coming up. I actually have a, another proposal to look at just that. 
And if you hadn't had the data and hadn't had done what you did, what would have happened to those patients? How, no, what, would their, I, I, yeah. what would their journey have been? I think in any of our patients, I truly believe in the last few two years that the patients I was caring for would have had higher exposures. They would have been on opioids much longer. They would have been exposed to benzodiazepines that they are not getting now. And so the patients that are polypharmacy and those non-responders, we all knew about them. And we talked about sedation problems in faculty meeting and all those kids would come to mind, but no one was doing anything about it. They would just be like, oh, they're just, they're, they're maniacs of the, of the ICU and we're always going to have some. In fact, our protocols were written for the 80% of the population. We always knew there's a 20% of the population that falls outside of the protocol that's gonna be on six drugs. And so the difficult to sedate dashboard I showed you and the following how many kids are falling on that difficult to sedate is about 20%. So it, we were, we, it was a guess of ours, but we, we could do it. And so avoiding polypharmacy, except there's still those kids that fall out. Now we can identify them, find out why they're different. So. Most of the people in this room are analysts. They're not clinicians. They're not nurses. They're not doctors. They're not therapists. Can you give them advice on how they should work with people like you? I'll come and work experts. with me at Texas Children's. <laughs> just, and just subject matter experts. Me. I need all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and really subject do. matter experts. And yeah. how should they work when they go back to their organizations? How should they approach and how should they interact with subject matter experts like yourself, clinicians, doctors, nurses, yeah. and others? So we we've... We're trying to get a lot of data, and data accessibility is a problem, like I said, at Texas Children's, just like anywhere else. And what, what I have actually introduced over, and we just started, fresh, brand new, with the word called collaboratory. So collaboration and laboratory. Because what we're doing is a laboratory, right? Data analysis and data, even discovery, is a laboratory. So a collaboratory would bring together that, that IT specialist or the, the um, tableau leader, and then the SME. So the subject area expert comes and sits together. What I have been is that I've been the, the expert that's delivering dashboards and, and bringing them alongside and showing them. But I think there's people like you who have excellent knowledge and, and skill that could come next to the subject matter expert and show them what you can do. Um, but it does take that relationship. It, it, you can't do it and you know, stay in silos and stay information services over here, IT over here, data analysts, data scientists, brilliant data scientists need to come with brilliant clinicians and be collaborating. And, and I believe that's the only way we're gonna have access to the data and have the data speak to us is with that collaboratory, collaboration. Okay, I think that's all our time. Thank you everyone really for coming. I'm really pleased to really happy. Supposed to show that too, I forgot. Forgot to show that slide.